I'm going to invite you this morning, if you would take your Bibles out and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. This morning, we're looking at a new series, The Supremacy of Christ. Uh, we're looking at the sufficiency of Christ and how we're to have no other substitutes for Him uh, in our life. Everything that we need is found in Christ. And folks, I want us to understand that. And this morning we're looking at the subject matter of gratitude. Gratitude in Christians and a commitment to the gospel. And so would you stand for the reading of God's word and I'll be reading in verses 1 to 8. Verses 1 to 8, Paul says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Father, we're so grateful for this book, and I pray over the next coming weeks that you would teach us what you would have us to know and to understand and to apply in our lives. Lord, we live in such a confused age where people are looking for answers and meaning and purpose and we know that to some degree that's always been the case since the fall in Genesis 3. But Lord, it's like we're seeing it today so rampant every direction we turn. And so we know that this little book of just uh, four chapters has such a message to modern man in 2017. Lord, help us to understand and fully know with hearts of gratitude what it is that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. That because of Him we have reconciliation with you and we have a heavenly hope and there's nothing in this world that we need to fear. Lord, teach us this morning precious truths out of your word. Use it to change somebody's life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you this morning if you would make sure that you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, if you would reach into the pew rack in front of you and pull out a Bible there. And, and I'm going to have you find page number 939, I believe it is. Now, that's not Colossians 1, that's Romans 1. But later on in the message, we're going to be walking through some, some uh, scripture verses that I want you to highlight. Uh, make sure you've got a pen or a pencil or a highlighter if you've brought your own Bible with you. 
because we're going to be going over some things related to the gospel and I would like you to be able to walk away from here uh, today with it and, and have it in such a way that you could even use it this week as you talk to somebody. I want to begin introducing the book of Colossians by quoting a rather lengthy quote from a popular writer and commentator today as he describes for us the setting in the book of Colossians. Folks, if we're going to understand the book of Colossians the way we need to, we need to understand something about the setting. And so I want you to listen uh, to what one writer says. He says, For what, from whatever angle one views our age, Colossians, the book of Colossians, is very much up to date. Although written nearly 2,000 years ago, its timeless message speaks to the dilemmas facing us today. To the problems and crises of our age, it presents Jesus Christ as the answer. Our age is an age of science. 95% of all the scientists who have ever lived are alive today. The past century has seen a tremendous increase in knowledge in all areas of science and technology from microbiology to astrophysics. Millions of pages of scientific and technical literature are published annually. Even specialists find it difficult to keep up with the flood of discoveries even in their own fields of study. The rapidly advancing pace of scientific discovery leads to the question of how God relates to the universe. Is he a part of the created universe or its creator? Did the universe evolve or was it created? Well, Colossians answers those questions. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. This is also an age of ecumenism. Many people are seeking to unify the world's religions. Some seek a unity of political and social action. Others a unity based on common experience. Efforts are being made to unify not only Protestants and Catholics, but also such diverse religions as Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Such a religious amalgamation would be a body without a head. There can be no unity apart from the truth. Colossians gives us God's perspective. On this push for a one world church. It tells us that there is but one true church whose head is Christ. He, Christ, as Paul says, is also head of the body, the church. True unity can exist only among the members of Christ's body. Rebellion against all forms of authority also marks our age. Absolutes are denied. Truth, especially religious truth, is viewed today as being simply relative. All religious traditions are assumed to be of equal value. To claim that one religion is exclusively true is regarded as the height of intolerance and bigotry. In such a religious climate, Jesus becomes merely another wise man. He's nothing more than a great moral teacher on par with Moses, Muhammad, Confucius, and Buddha. But Colossians gives us Jesus' true identity. 
Far from being just another religious leader, he is the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. As God in human flesh, Jesus' word is authoritatively, absolutely, and exclusively true. Ours is also an age of pragmatism. The question people ask about a religion or philosophy is not whether it is true, but does it work? They want to know if it will make a difference in their lives. People therefore ask pragmatic questions about Christianity. Can Christ really change lives? Can he give peace and joy and happiness? Does knowing Christ give meaning, hope and purpose in life? Well, Colossians answers those questions. Paul says he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Christ makes sinners holy and blameless in God's sight. He changes lives. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Knowing Christ gives stability to our lives. Colossians also says, in him, in Christ, you have been made complete. Christ fulfills all of our needs so that we lack nothing. This is also an age marked by frustrated relationships. People long for meaningful relationships and yet most find those longings unfulfilled. Many people do not know how to relate to their spouses, their children, or the people they work with and live with. Colossians likewise speaks clearly to this issue. To the lonely, alienated people of our day, Colossians brings a message of hope. Finally, ours is an eschatological age. People fear the end of the world could be near at any moment. Uh, Colossians has something to say, therefore, about our destiny. Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now folks, that's quite an introductory statement, isn't it? That's a great summary of the book of Colossians. Now, we know that the apostle Paul did not found or establish the uh, the church there at Colossae. The Bible tells us that that distinction and honor goes to another man, a man by the name of Epaphras that we were introduced to in this text. You see, according to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul taught in Ephesus for two years and he taught in a rented hall there that belonged to a man by the name of Tyrannus. And during this two-year period of time, it is believed that Epaphras traveled from Colossae 100 miles away to Ephesus, he heard the gospel there in Ephesus. He was converted. He came to faith in Christ. He traveled back to his hometown of Colossae and he helped to establish a church there. And so Epaphras is somebody that very much had a church planter spirit, a missionary spirit. He wanted to take the good news of Jesus Christ that he heard and he wanted to see the gospel of Christ impact people in his own town. 
And so again, he went back there to Colossae. He established a church there. And now it's some period of time later, he has heard that the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome and the church there at Colossae is being faced with false teaching. And so Epaphras travels to Rome to see Paul. He tells Paul all about this heresy that's going on in the city of Colossae. He gets Paul's take on it and hence comes the book of Colossians. Now many have written about what is referred to as the Colossian heresy. That forms the background to this book. It is believed to have been some type of combination of Jewish legalism and Greek philosophy. Maybe the Greek philosophy was a very early form of Gnosticism. Now a few prominent writers, few prominent commentators tend to believe that Jewish legalism and nothing more than that is the background of this book. But again, most scholars believe today it was a combination of Jewish legalism and Greek philosophy. We know that the Greeks loved their knowledge. And they prided themselves on their philosophical systems. To them, the gospel was too simple. You needed to add something to the gospel. You needed a salvation that was Christ plus something else. In this case, that something else being a special knowledge that only an elite few could enjoy. Now, according to the Colossian heresy, God was good, but all matter was evil. Because a good God could not have created evil matter, they believed that a descending series of emanations or spirit beings came out from God and it was this descending order of spirit beings, Jesus being one of them, they said, that created the universe and the world and all matter. And so in their scheme of things, there's nothing unique about Jesus Christ. He's just one of many spirit beings. And so the Colossian heresy denied the full divinity of Jesus Christ. Paul's going to write to combat that. They also denied the full humanity of Christ. Since matter is evil, it was inconceivable that a good spirit being could take up a human body. Well again, in this letter, Paul is going to affirm the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus Christ. And he is going to point out the truth that we are made fully complete in Jesus Christ. Salvation and reconciliation with God comes through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. You're saved through Christ alone and you don't need to try to add anything to him. You don't need to look for any kind of substitute for him because there can be no substitute for Jesus Christ. And then again there was this Jewish element that tried to add works righteousness to salvation. So at Colossae, they're dealing with all of this amalgamation of false beliefs. Let me try to give you an analogy of what it might be like today. You might know somebody who is an Orthodox Jew. 
Now let's say today, take an Orthodox Jew who begins to question his faith and he begins to visit, tragically, a New Age bookstore filled with Eastern mysticism and he fills his head with all of this Eastern mysticism and he's torn between the faith of his childhood, his Orthodox uh, Judaism and keeping of the law and this new Eastern mysticism. He's torn between the two. That's the situation going on at Colossae. And Paul is going to say to them, you need to reject both of those ways. The law in and of itself cannot save and Greek philosophy cannot save. But hallelujah, Jesus saves. So again, if you have him, you you have all that you need. Well, folks, Colossians is going to remind us of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and that nothing should be placed ahead of him. We know that today people neglect Christ and they fill their lives with all sorts of things that will not profit in the end. Now, if you think about it, Paul's life is a parable of the book of Colossians because Paul writing to the Philippians said that he was a Jew far excelling all of his countrymen he was born of the tribe of Benjamin a prominent tribe he was circumcised the eighth day he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees keeping the law he was blameless but Paul met Jesus and everything changed and he said whatever was gained to me I now count as loss for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord and so folks if you think about it the very truths that the apostle Paul is going to communicate in the book of Colossians Paul himself lived out those very truths in his life Now what we're going to see today is that believers need to be grateful for one another for the faith that we have in Jesus Christ and what that means. It means that we have a heavenly hope laid up for us. Not only do believers need to be filled with gratitude, but also there needs to be a deep commitment in our lives to the gospel. Now, first of all, this morning, I want you to see with me that Christians should be grateful in our prayers for other believers because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Paul begins in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you Paul was filled with gratitude for the Colossian believers now folks I want you to notice how he begins this letter now again in this message I want you to understand I'm trying to lay some groundwork in this first message before we we get on with a lot of things he's going to talk about but first of all you notice he identifies himself as an apostle an apostle by the will of God an apostle of Christ by the will of God now as I've pointed out to you before I do do not believe that this is a role that exists today. 
I do not believe that there are apostles today in the true New Testament definition of apostles. You see, apostles were those who were alive in and around Jerusalem during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and who were witnesses of all of the miracles that Christ did and they were witnesses of his crucifixion and his resurrection. In addition to that, apostles were those that Christ had appeared to and commissioned them to carry on his work as an apostle. And so they had seen the risen Lord with their own eyes and they'd been commissioned by him. Now, an apostle, the word refers to one who is sent. The apostles were those who were sent out first to get the church established. And God gave the apostles special miracle working powers to confirm the truth of the message that they spoke. Now obviously what all of that means is that there are no apostles today. Paul describes himself elsewhere as an apostle born out of due time. And he says, last of all, Jesus appeared to me after his resurrection. Now we can take that to mean that based on the New Testament definition of an apostle that's given in in the book of Acts and in the epistles, Paul was the very last one who became an apostle. And he matches that title. He matches that role of being an apostle. Even though he was not a follower of Jesus when Jesus was crucified, Paul was nonetheless, as Rabbi Saul, a witness of everything that happened surrounding Jesus in Jerusalem. And then, of course, he became a believer himself on the Damascus Road. Jesus appeared to him, saved him, called him, and commissioned him. And so again, Paul fits the definition. Now somebody today can have an apostolic spirit in a sense of going into a new area in the world and being a church planner and getting the gospel established in some area where it's not been before. But again, there's no official role today of an apostle. If you know somebody who describes themselves as an apostle, then you need to ask them why they would choose to identify themselves with such a puffed up role there's a problem there a lack of humility but again Paul writes as an apostle now there's a phrase here that I want you to underscore it's very important in verse 2 he says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ I want you to underscore that phrase in Christ it's a very important phrase in Paul's letters It is a phrase that he uses 33 times in his epistles. And then if you look at the elongated form of it, where Paul says, In Christ Jesus our Lord, he uses that 48 times. Now, you say, what is so significant about that phrase, in Christ? Well, I'll tell you what's significant about it. It's because every single person on the face of planet earth is either in Adam or in Christ. Some of you in here this morning tragically are in Adam. You've never been born again. You're not in Christ. You're in Adam. And if you die in that condition, 
you are going to be separated from God for all of eternity and you're going to go to a place that the Bible calls hell. You're still in Adam. You've only experienced the first birth, the physical birth. And if you've only experienced the first birth, the physical birth, you're going to die twice. You're going to die physically, but you're also going to die spiritually. But if you're in Christ, that means you've not only uh, experienced the physical birth, but you've experienced the second birth, the spiritual birth. And if you've been born twice, you're only going to die once, the physical death. But absent from the body, present with the Lord, you have nothing to fear from physical death. Amen? Are you in Christ this morning? Are you in Christ? Paul is writing to those, to believers who are in Christ. And they're troubled by false teaching. Now, as Paul, you'll notice as he gives that thanks for them, he gives thanks because of their faith in Jesus Christ, their love for their brothers and sisters in the Lord, and it's all based, he says, on the hope they have laid up for them in heaven. He's grateful for them because that miracle of all miracles, the second birth has happened to them. And because they have been born again, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And they've got that inheritance waiting for them in heaven. Folks, I want you to understand you possess that heavenly hope if you're in Christ. Nothing can take that away. Absolutely nothing you experience on the face of this earth can take away that hope that you have laid up for you in heaven. Peter writes of that hope in 1 Peter chapter 1 and he says that hope is reserved for you in heaven. It is kept for you and Peter says you're kept for it until the day you and that heavenly hope come together and you're matched up and you're in that place where Christ says that he is making all things. Things new. You see, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Folks, do you realize what you have if you are in Christ? You are rich. You may have nothing of the world's goods, but you have a heavenly inheritance laid up for you. And you can be very grateful for that. You are rich in Christ. And you have a wonderful future ahead of you. And the Bible says whatever tribulations you experience in this life. And Christians do experience trials and tribulations just like everybody else. But everything you experience in this life. When you compare it to heaven. If you could put all of your common trials on one side of the scale. And your heavenly hope on the other side. Your current trials would not even begin to compare to the hope that you have laid up for you in heaven we can be grateful for one another's faith because when you meet another believer you are meeting somebody whose sins are never going to be held against them 
Romans 8, 1. Now, you'll have to give an account of your life, obviously, but your sins in the sense of you you not being saved, that'll never be held against you. Romans 8, 1 says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus the Lord. I want you to think about it. When we meet fellow believers, we are meeting people that God has done that miracle of all miracles in. God has converted their soul and written their names in the Lamb's book of life. And they've got a glorious future in heaven one day. Folks, if you can't be grateful for what God has done for you in Christ, I don't know what you can be grateful for. So I want you to see today who you are. If you're in Christ, you are wealthy, you are rich in spiritual terms. You've got this wonderful hope that is laid up for you in heaven that nothing can ever take away from that or diminish that in any way. It'll never fade. It'll be just as glorious 10,000 years after we've been there as the very first day we get there. And this new birth, Paul says about the Colossians, is seen in their lives by the way that they love one another. You see, folks, somebody is not a Christian just because they say that they're a Christian. If they're truly a Christian, the evidence of it's going to be witnessed in their life. Their life's going to be changed. And one of the things that's going to characterize your life if you're in Christ is you're going to have a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, John says in 1 John, if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's because you still abide in death. If you're a believer, it changes the way you live every day of your life because you love the commandments of God, you love the work of God, and you love the people of God. And Paul says, as I look at your life and I hear what Epaphras has to say about you, I'm so grateful for you because it's evident to me that you've been chained, uh, changed. You are a new creation in Christ and you love the brethren. Are you a grateful Christian? Grateful for the miracle of the new birth? Grateful for what God has done in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ? And grateful for the heavenly hope that we have in Christ? I hope gratitude is something that characterizes your life. We're going to run into that theme of gratitude more in chapter 1. Secondly though this morning I want to hasten on to point out not only should gratitude characterize our lives but Christians should be committed to the gospel. Look at what he begins saying there in verse 5. He says because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you've heard before in the word of the truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant. We live in a time in history where people want to discount truth. Paul says here that the gospel is the word of truth. 
Folks, everything you hear today about spiritual matters is not true. Don't believe everything you hear today just because it wears the title of being spiritual. Everything spiritual today is not true, but the good news of Jesus Christ is true. And furthermore, it is God's truth. And there is no higher authority than God himself. Jesus said in John 17, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. The gospel is truth. The gospel is the message that God uses to bring about the miracle of the new birth in people. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Folks in the church, we need to be committed to the gospel. I read something the other week that is so disturbing about this and you can go online and you can read it for yourself. You can Google Facts and Trends magazine. It's put out by Southern Baptist and by Lifeway. And a couple of weeks ago, they had an article in Facts and Trends that only three in ten Professing Christians today still believe in the solas of the Reformation. Now you remember what happened in the Reformation when it got, really got kicked off when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. And he was challenging the Roman Catholic Church at the time because he felt like they were getting away from the true gospel. And as a result of the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers came out. It's, it's been called the five solas. And you know what those are. Sola scriptura. In other words, Scripture and Scripture alone is the foundation for faith and practice. And then sola fide. Faith alone. You can't add human works to it. Faith and faith alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. Solus Christus. Through Christ alone. And soli deo uh, gloria. For the glory of God alone. The five solas of the reformation. And sadly Three, only three in ten professing Christians today say that they still believe those five solas. You know what that tells me, ladies and gentlemen? That tells me that you and I today in 2017 are watching before our very eyes the modern day church abandon the gospel. It's sad what's going on. When people reject sola scriptura, sola fide, sola Christus, when they reject things like that, you are looking at a church that has abandoned the gospel. Folks, we need to be committed to the gospel because, again, it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And I'm going to talk in a moment about what the gospel does. Because Paul's going to say right here, the gospel bears fruit in all the world just as it is in you. It does bear fruit. It changes lives. It transforms lives. It transforms marriages. It transforms relationships. It ought to transform everything about our lives. 
But before talking about what the gospel does, do you know what the gospel is? If somebody asks you at school or work next week, if they say, hey, I know you're a Christian and you go to church, what is the gospel? What would you tell them? I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans for a moment. Romans chapter 1. Because I want to go over a few things for you. Romans chapter 1. And begin reading with me in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. And again, I want to, I want to ask you to underscore this. And all I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read passages of Scripture, okay? And then after I read all these passages of Scripture, we're going to come back around. We're going to try to tie everything together. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness godliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's just written that for those who believe the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. But for those who don't believe they're under the wrath of God. Now turn over to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 9. Beginning in verse 9 of Romans 3, Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they've not known there's no fear of God before their eyes now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by the works of the law underscore this for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin but now verse 21 says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look over at chapter 5. Chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whoa. Chapter 6, verse 23. Somebody's not happy, are they? Uh, verse 23 of chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death... 
But listen to this. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now if you take your Bibles real quick. We're almost, we're wrapping up here and, and I'll tie everything together. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 because I want you to see what he's saying here about the gospel. He begins in chapter 2 of Ephesians and saying, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Folks, Jesus Christ is the gospel. The word gospel, euangelion, meant, means literally good news. And it was originally used in the Greek and Roman world of when they would go to battle with their enemy and a runner, a runner would come from the battlefield and he would run back into town and he would announce the good news of victory. He would bring the euangelion, the good news, announcing victory. Well, the Bible announces the good news in Christ. That in Christ, God has dealt with all of our sins. He laid all of your sin upon Christ. And Christ died in your stead. The just for the unjust that he might bring you to God. You cannot add human works to it. You cannot add philosophy to it. There is nothing you can do. You say, Pastor, but you don't realize how good I am. Well, that's because you're comparing yourself with other people. The Bible compares us to Jesus Christ. And in light of Jesus Christ, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. As Romans 3 says, there is none good. You will never get... Listen, you will not get into heaven because of the best five minutes you've ever lived in your life. The best five minutes you've ever lived in your life will not justify you to get you to heaven. You'll only make it through Christ and Christ alone. That's the gospel. And there are people that you will meet this week, tragically even those in the church, who still think they can add something to the gospel. There's something that I can add to Jesus Christ. There's something I can do to benefit myself. No, the only thing you and I are called upon to do is repent of our sins and come to Christ and trust Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Do you have a clear understanding that that's what the gospel is? The gospel is Jesus. And Paul says of them, again, you look at what he's saying about them. Verse 6, they heard it, 
And they understood it. You see, Epaphras brought it to them. Romans 10 talks about people having beautiful feet who bring the glad tidings of good news. Epaphras went to them. He preached the gospel. They heard it. They believed and they were saved. You've heard. But has the Spirit of the living God opened your heart to understand and believe? Because, folks, I'm telling you, the ver- God's verdict in His Word, you and I have offended a just and a holy God. And we are deserving of His wrath. And it is not a false accusation that He makes of us. It is true. I have sinned. You have sinned. I have offended God. You have offended God. And in that condition, there is nothing but condemnation. But God loves you. And God himself provided the sacrifice that he demanded. What do you call that? I call that grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Think about that. God demanded a sacrifice for sin. And God himself provided the sacrifice that he demanded. Because he knew that I couldn't and you couldn't. Some people hate God. What? You hate the hand that feeds you? You hate the very one who provided the gift that you couldn't provide? Folks, we ought to love him. He's done it all in Christ. God deserves to be worshipped and praised because of the good news. The good news that is announced to us. Do you understand what the gospel is? And have you experienced the power of the gospel in your own life? Paul says of them, they had responded to that gospel and it was bearing fruit in them and increasing in the whole world as it was in them. The same gospel we preach here that changes people's lives is the same gospel that's preached all over the world. There is not one gospel for America and another gospel for other places. It is one gospel and the gospel is Jesus Christ. Having experienced the gospel. I want you to read one last passage in closing. I want you to read Romans 1. Romans 1 beginning in verse 14. Notice what Paul says there. Romans 1, 14 and following. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says, I've got an obligation on my head. The word is a debt. I've got a debt on my head. Now there are two ways we can understand debt and it's the second one that he's talking about here. The first way of understanding debt 
is I can go down to Waco- uh, Wachovia, listen, I can go down to Wells Fargo or Bank of America or BBT or whatever bank, and I can get a mortgage and I am in debt to the bank. They put up the money and I'm in debt to pay that mortgage over 30 years or 15 years, whatever. That kind of debt, that's not the sense of debt here in Romans 1. The sense of debt mentioned here, let's say a homeless person, just an analogy, all analogies break down, but a homeless person here who's destitute and they're starving, and I've got to run out the door and go. And so I give Davy a $100 bill. And I say, Davy, listen, this $100 bill I'm giving you, feed that. If that person doesn't eat today, their health might be in jeopardy. I've got to go and I give him that $100. Well, he is indebted, I guarantee you, all day long until he gives that person that $100 bill. He's going to sense there's a debt. I, I've, got, I've got something I owe this man. Paul says, that's, that's the obligation I'm under, the debt. God, through His grace, has helped me to understand the gospel. And He's changed my life, Paul would say, on the road to Damascus. He converted me. And now I'm in debt because I know the gospel and I've experienced the gospel. I am in debt to both Jews and Greeks that I've got to give them the good news that I've experienced. Folks, I would to God that every single one of us, myself included, every day of our lives, would live our lives with that sense of indebtedness. That God has entrusted something to us that we dare not keep to ourselves because people are dying without it. Do you know the gospel and do you live with that sense of indebtedness? And are you grateful for other believers that God has done that work, that miracle of the new birth in them? I'll be down front to pray with anybody that you know God is calling you to Christ. The Holy Spirit of the living God is convicting you of your sin and He's calling you to believe upon Christ. I'll be here to pray with you. There are others perhaps that need to be at this altar this morning and say, God, help me to live every day with that sense of indebtedness to the gospel.